0: The following sermon audio, the following sermon audio, the following sermon audio is a presentation of First International Baptist Church, of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. There once was a wealthy woman traveling overseas far away from her husband, and uh, She found a bracelet that she thought was irresistible. She just had to get it. And these were the days when people sent cables back to each other. And so she cabled her husband, writing this, "'Have found wonderful bracelet. "'Price, $75,000. "'May I buy it?' Her husband promptly replied, saying, "'No, comma, price too high. But this was the day of cables. And the cable operator left out a very small detail, the comma. She received the message, no price too high. (laughs) So she bought it. What a difference such a small comma can make. Most of you have a mobile phone probably in your pocket right now. And many of you know that it was Alexander Graham Bell that invented the phone. But what many of you don't know, at least I didn't know this, was that many years before Alexander Graham Bell invented the phone, there was a German schoolteacher by the name of Rice, R E I S, who had invented a phone. It's just that his phone was only able to transmit whistles and humming, couldn't transmit the human voice. It wasn't until many years later that Mr. Bell discovered the error in Rice's invention. There was a small screw that controlled the electrodes in his invention, and it needed an adjustment of one one one-thousandth of an inch. He discovered the error, and he's now since been credited as inventing the telephone. Imagine, again, what a large difference a small thing can make. If such a small thing could make such a big difference, what about a big difference, or a big thing? Couldn't that make an even bigger difference? There once was a young girl being examined for her membership in a local church, and she was asked, has Christ made a difference in your life? She replied, well, certainly Christ has made a difference in her life, and trying to draw her out more, she was asked, well, then, do you sin anymore? And she admitted that she did sin. So the deacon interviewing her asked her, well, if you sinned before you were a Christian and you sin since you became a Christian, how then has Christ made a difference in your life? And she said, sir, I think it's this. Before I was a Christian, I ran after sin. Today, I run from it, though sometimes it manages to overtake me. again, Sometimes it's a small difference, sometimes it's a big difference. Small things can make a big difference. How much more big things can make a big difference? And as I was preparing the sermon for today, of course, the events of Friday night struck me and I wondered, do I need to change my message for today? Since we're going through the Old Testament and studying the book of Kings, and I realized, well, I think it is a very timely message anyway, because it was the it It was a big thing that the kings of Judah did that made a huge difference in the fate of Judah. Some things that I believe we can learn from today, as you learned last week as Austin brought the message about the demise of Israel, you saw that they forgot to love the Lord with all of their hearts and soul and mind and strength, and so they began to forsake the Lord and go after their idols, and ultimately it led to their capture and their exile by the Assyrians. But the kings of Judah in the southern kingdom, while many of them also led their people to a similar fate, only by the Babylonians, there were some kings among them who made a big difference in their fate. There were some kings among them who were good and that led their people through a revival, and, then, and therefore they survived longer than the northern kingdom did. And it's these lessons that we're going to look at today the revivals experienced by the southern kingdom, the kings of Judah, delayed the ultimate defeat and their exile by some 100 years. And all of this still reminds us that God chastises those whom he loves. Yes, he lovingly inflicts pain and suffering to correct his people's waywardness and to restore the blessedness of their relationship and Because some of Judah's kings were responsive to God's warnings and to his chastisement, because they heeded the words of the prophets, their people in their generation did not experience the wrath that later generations experienced. And they enjoyed times of prosperity. So what are the lessons we can learn? Because I believe you and I live in a generation where we can make a big difference. No matter how small we feel we might be. We were reminded last week about how our hearts are susceptible to idols, things that might draw us away from God, and the need to confess our sinful shortcomings. Yes, and that's all part of it. And so my hope is, of course, that as we learn from the revivals of the kings of Judah, that maybe, just maybe, you and I can be part of a revival in our generation. So we're going to see how the good kings in the southern kingdom of Judah led their people through a time of revival and renewal and thence helped them to survive longer than the kings of Israel. And we're going to look at three kings in particular. Jehoshaphat, not to be confused with the jumping Jehoshaphat that many people refer to. This Jehoshaphat did not jump, and you'd have to, I guess, be American to understand that reference. But also Hezekiah and Josiah. But there are equally some valuable lessons to learn from some of the bad kings, and so we'll take a look at that as well. But Jehoshaphat, he was one of the few kings who was, quote, like his father David, because he obeyed the Lord. He did, as the scriptures say, what is right in the eyes of the Lord. And so I invite you to turn with me to 2 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 3 through 6. And as you learned last week, Israel had no good kings. The northern kingdom had no good kings, and so they went through one dynasty after another. In fact, eight different dynasties, as the Bible calls, calls houses, each one replacing the one before it. But Judah, while they had 19 kings, they had eight good kings, and Jehoshaphat was one of them. They had also one queen who never should have been on the throne. More about her later. But 2 Chronicles chapter 17, we're introduced to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. Verse 3, the Lord was with Jehoshaphat because in his early years he walked in the ways of his father David, in the ways his father David had followed. He did not consult the Baals, verse 4 of chapter 17, 2 Chronicles, but sought the God of his father and followed his commands rather than the practices of Israel. The Lord established the kingdom under his control, and all Judah brought gifts to Jehoshaphat so that he had great wealth and honor. His heart was devoted in the ways of the Lord. Furthermore, he removed the high places and the Asherah poles from Judah. So we see that he actively sought to reverse the apostasy of his nation. Apostasy simply means to desert or depart from your religion. And as the people of Judah had departed from the covenant with Jehovah God, Jehoshaphat actively sought to return them. His heart was devoted to the ways of the Lord, and he removed the high places and the Asherah poles. More than that, he also urged the people, now is the time to follow the Lord. If you go over to chapter 19, verse 4, you'll see that he lived in Jerusalem. He went out again among the people from Bersheba to the hill country of Ephraim and turned them back to the Lord, the God of their fathers. He appointed judges in the land in each of the fortified cities of Judah. He told them, consider carefully what you do, because you are not judging for man, but for the Lord who is with you whenever you give a verdict. Now let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Judge carefully, for with the Lord God there is no injustice or partiality or bribery. So not only did he abandon the idols of his time, but he also turned the people's hearts to the Lord and had them to fear the Lord. And then it shows up in his trust for the Lord. Notice in chapter 20. Something happens. Verse two. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, "A vast army is coming against you from Eden, Edom, from the other side of the sea. It is already in Hazazon, Tamar, that is in Engedi. Alarmed, verse three. Jehoshaphat resolved to inquire. Of the Lord, and he proclaimed a fast for all Judah. The people of Judah came together to seek help from the Lord. Indeed, they came from every town in Judah to seek him. And then Jehoshaphat stood up in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem at the temple of the Lord, in front of the new courtyard, and said. And then his prayer follows in verses six, six uh, yeah, verses six through twelve. And let me just summarize it for you. Basically, he calls to the Lord as God of our fathers. He acknowledges the Lord as ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations. He asks God, judge them, the attackers. And then he surrendered himself to the will and power of God. He says this at the end of his uh, prayer at verse 12. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. Just as we sang today that our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ as our deliverer. And then the people of Judah stood and waited upon the Lord. And turn to to verse 15 when you see the words of a prophet speaking to Jehoshaphat. Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow, march down against them. They will be climbing up the pass of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the gorge in the desert of Jeruel. You will not have to fight this battle. Take up your positions, stand firm, and see the deliverance the Lord will give you, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid, do not be discouraged. Go out to face them tomorrow, and the Lord will be with you. So, of course, Jehoshaphat followed the instructions. And he basically sent his worship team, his praise team, out in front of the army to start singing and praising the Lord and and singing Give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. And as they came upon the other army, they were already all wiped out because the Lord had gone before them. He took care of the rest. The attacking armies began attacking themselves, and they left a battlefield strewn with such a great amount of equipment and supplies, it took three days to collect all of it. Just as God had said, the battle is not yours. He wasn't perfect. He made an alliance with one of Israel's wicked kings, and so the Lord also caused him to suffer loss. But I believe the truth we can learn from this is that those who obey the Lord and who serve Him can trust Him for His deliverance. If you obey and serve the Lord, you can trust Him for your deliverance. David was one of those who wrote a lot of psalms And the title of Deliverer for the Lord seems to be one of his key names for the Lord. There are four psalms that use the word deliverer to describe the Lord, and all four of them are written by David. There are three more psalms where he says he delivers, or the Lord delivers. And David was certainly one who knew what it was like to be pursued and attacked by enemies. He was frequently and personally having to experience the Lord as his deliverer as his deliverer. So is it any wonder then that the kings of Judah who walked in the ways of David also experienced the deliverance of the Lord? Psalm 97, we don't know the author of Psalm 97, but he assumes that those who love the Lord will deliver them from the hand of their enemies. He starts with the Lord reigns, goes to sing of how fearsome and powerful the Lord is, and then he says, let all those be ashamed who serve graven images, who boast themselves in idols. Why? Because the Lord is the most high over all the earth, exalted far above all gods. And he urges them, Hate evil, you, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Friends, I find that the assurance for us is that if we are faithfully obeying the Lord, faithfully serving him alone, then we can trust him for our deliverance. Maybe you have once experienced being falsely accused. Maybe mocked or persecuted for your faith, your faith in Christ Jesus, your stand for Him. You know you didn't do anything wrong, and yet they bring up evidence that seems to incriminate you. You have a hope and a joy despite bad circumstances, and yet they mock you for trusting the God that you cannot see. Maybe you feel that you need to retaliate because you're mocked or persecuted, or you worry that your reputation can never be repaired after what they have accused you of. But if you have a clear conscience... If you have been obedient and you have served the Lord, then you can put yourself at ease and let the Lord work out his deliverance. I see this also in the life of Paul as he was in prison. Far from the Philippians whom he loved, under arrest in Rome, he writes to them, I will rejoice for I know that this, his imprisonment, will work out for my deliverance through your prayers and through the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ will, even now as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. Do you have this confidence, friends? If you serve and obey the Lord, you can have this confidence. I have a friend and fellow pastor at IBC Frankfurt. Today... He is currently facing an effort by the police in Germany to arrest him because he's been protecting refugees who have sought asylum in his church building. He is well within the German law today, but it appears that the police are trying to use this to try to overturn such laws of protection. And so they're threatening him with imprisonment and heavy fines. Well, we can only pray that Brother Rodrigo will continue to be faithful, will continue to trust in the Lord for his deliverance in one way or another as he's faithful to what he believes he's being called to do. Well, maybe you haven't faced such physical oppression, but maybe spiritual oppression and felt being under attack not from a physical enemy but by the devil and his demons. Well, again, I turn to Paul who reminds the church in Ephesus, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Friends, if that's not a timely message, I don't know what is. Christians will always be in a war against the forces of darkness, whether they bring about corruption, depravity, sexual perversions, greed, exploitation, or terror. Let us not be discouraged. And let us not grow weary in doing good or give up the fight. Because why? Our redemption is drawing near. The war will end only when Christ returns to take us home. But there are still battles to win in the meantime as we trust in the Lord. And as the people of Judah returned to the Lord, they saw his deliverance firsthand. There were many that came after Jehoshaphat. There was Jehoram. Now, unfortunately, he was one who walked in the ways of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had done, for he married a daughter of Ahab, He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, we're told in 2 Kings chapter 8. And that Ahab was the same Ahab of Israel who had married Jezebel. So you should be familiar with who who his parents were. Ahab was the son of Omri, the king of Israel, who, as it says in the Bible, sinned more than all those before him. Well, Jehoram, the woman he married, her name was Athaliah, the one I had referred to earlier as one who had become the queen. Now, when you're allied with an evil king and an evil father-in-law, like Ahab and his wife Jezebel, well, it's only natural that you would be influenced to rule like he did. Well, Ahaziah, his son, was just like his father Jehoram, and he was killed in battle by Jehu, and you heard about Jehu last week from Austin. So he only lasted one year as a king. Well, of course, it should have been Ahaziah's sons that became king, but no, his mother, Athaliah, daughter of Jezebel and Ahab, granddaughter of Omri, she almost succeeded in murdering every other contender to the throne. Yes, friends, her own grandchildren. And so she ascended to the throne and she lasted just six years because there was a faithful priest, Jehoiada, who led a coup that overthrew her. And one of Ahaziah's sons, had been hidden in the temple. It's a pretty exciting story. You should read it someday. He was rescued by his aunt. And so when six years had passed, a coup was made that overthrew this wicked queen, and Joash was installed as king. And Joash is one of four good kings that happened. There were reforms and repairs made to the temple, He was heavily influenced by the priest. There was Amaziah after him. There was Azariah after him, also known as Uzziah. You might remember his name as the the king who was struck with leprosy. And then came Jotham, and all of these did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But then comes another evil king, Ahaz. All of the good that had happened was suddenly reversed by one king, Ahaz. Why? He was, well, unlike his father David. He was like the kings of Israel. Yes, he even offered his own son as a sacrifice. He was under attack by Israel and by Edom, and it says that the Lord had humbled Judah because of Ahaz, for he had um, more wickedness in Judah, and had, he had been most un- he'd been, sorry, he had been sorry, been most unfaithful to the Lord. He made altars in every town, and burnt sacrifices were made to the other gods, and he shut the doors of the Lord's temple. All of this really sets the stage now for Hezekiah. Hezekiah comes along, and he's the one who ushers in a revival. If you'll turn with me to 2 Chronicles again, chapter 29, he he followed Ahaz, but among the first thing that he did as a king was he made repairs to the temple and called on the Levite priests to consecrate themselves. And here we're going to learn uh, a pattern as we look at Jehoshaphat Hezekiah and then also Josiah about what happens in a revival. Chapter 29, verse 3 of Second Chronicles. In the first month of the first year of his reign, that is, Hezekiah, he opened the doors of the temple of the Lord, remember they had been shut, and repaired them. He brought in the priests and the Levites, assembled them in the square on the east side and said, listen to me, Levites. Consecrate yourselves now and consecrate the temple of the Lord, the God of your fathers. Remove all defilement from the sanctuary. Our fathers were unfaithful. They did evil in the eyes of the Lord, our God, and forsook him. They turned their faces away from the Lord's dwelling place and turned their backs on him. They also shut the doors of the portico and put out the lamps. They did not burn incense or present any burnt offerings at the sanctuary to the God of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord... Has fallen on Judah and Jerusalem, he has made them an object of dread and horror and scorn, as you can see with your own eyes. This is why our fathers have fallen by the sword, and why our sons and daughters and our wives are now in captivity. Now I intend to make a covenant with the Lord, the God of Israel, so that his fierce anger will turn away from us. So just like Jehoshaphat. He reverses the apostasy of the generation that came before him. He clears out the sanctuary of all the items which had defiled it, everything unclean that they found in the temple of the Lord. And after 16 days of cleansing, they consecrated the temple, and then he reinstated the worship of the Lord. And just like Jehoshaphat, he urges the people, follow now the commands of the Lord, sending out couriers to all of Israel, calling them in for the the celebration of the Passover, organizing a revival of the Lord's feasts, calling upon his people to come and and celebrate Passover as it hadn't been uh, uh, celebrated before. It was so great that they prolonged it another seven days. And he called for the people to bring in their contributions for the temple services. And what do you think happened as all of them began to bring their contributions? Well, look in chapter 31, verses 9 through 12 the signs of a true revival happening among God's people. Verse 9 says, Hezekiah asked the priests and Levites about the heaps, and Azariah, the chief priest from the family of Zadok, answered, Since the people began to bring their contributions to the temple of the Lord, we have had enough to eat and plenty to spare because the Lord has blessed his people, and this great amount is left over. So it's no wonder then that as the people began to give generously back to the Lord's temple and the worship of the Lord, that they were once again in fellowship with the Lord and once again renewing the covenant of the Lord, that they could depend on him now for deliverance. Because just like in Jehoshaphat's day, Hezekiah was under enemy attack. This time it was the Assyrians who came to take Jerusalem and to attack him. Remember, the Assyrians had attacked Israel in the north, and they had defeated them and they had exiled them. But God's judgment upon Israel was for their unfaithfulness and therefore it led to their defeat. But Judah was going to be different because they had a king who trusted the Lord, the God of Israel. So as the Assyrian supreme commander began to taunt Hezekiah, Hezekiah turns to the Lord. Which again sets for us a pattern that we can depend on on the deliverance of the Lord if we are faithful to obey and serve him. And then comes Josiah, and I'll go quickly through this before we look at the pattern of a revival. But Josiah was very similar. He came from a father who was very wicked, but then as a boy of eight years old, he was placed on the throne of Israel of Judah, excuse me, and then he began also restoring the altars and the places of the idol worship that his father had destroyed. Excuse me, Man- Manasseh had done that, but um, Josiah began to reverse those changes, And when he found the book of the law, or when it was found in the temple, he said, we need to read this book of the law. He tore up his clothes uh, in in grief. He had the the elders of Judah and the people of Jerusalem read the book together, and the nation renewed their covenant with the Lord. He gave orders once again for the celebration of the Passover. But But notice this especially, that sometimes all it takes is just one generation of a wicked king, and the whole nation forsakes the Lord their God and then again all it takes is one good king who brings revival to affect a whole generation of those people in Judah most of the kings were like were not like their father David eight of them were good and we've seen the example of three of us of three of them excuse me and there's a good reason friends that God has commanded his people to not only have his commandments in your hearts but to teach them to your children as well He expects us to be the ones to pass on the Lord's commandments to the next generation. And if we fail to instruct the next generation in the commands and the ways of the Lord, then the next generation will follow the ways of everyone else around the world and adopt their values and worship their gods and lead their sinful lives. But if we would be a generation that rises up to return to the Lord and forsake the waywardness and instead worship the Lord we might be the one that ushers in a generation to experience the great and mighty deliverance of the Lord God. So I ask us today, what will be the characterization of our generation and our leaders? Are we currently living in a generation today where the vast majority of people are living according to the ways of the Lord? I think we could safely say, no, not this generation. This generation does not fear the Lord alone, does not worship Him alone, does not trust in His deliverance. And I think it's safe to say that especially not here in a modern Western society and especially not here in Denmark, a country that has seen bygone generations where Christianity and the Bible had far greater influence, we do not see here that the society values and prioritizes the things of the Lord. So will we be that generation instead? Or will we be the generation that simply slides along with those who have immediately gone before us? What if God is waiting for us, you and me in this generation, to be like the kings of Judah, to call people to repentance and to return to the Lord? Will we have enough leaders who will walk in the ways of the Lord and remain faithful to Him? Will we be the kind of parents who walk in the ways of the Lord and teach our children to do so so that they can experience His protection and His blessings? Will we be the kind of church that's going to be obedient and faithful to the Lord our God in such a way that we begin to influence the culture around us rather than the culture influencing us. So don't underestimate the power of a godly in- influence over a generation. If a comma can make a big difference, if one, one thousandth of an inch can make a difference, what if you and I empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit? What difference could we make? Well, there are several elements, and will I only touch on four of them that I believe are common to the revivals that were led by the kings of Judah. The, one, the first of these is repentance. We've seen it in all three of our kings that the people were called upon to turn away from the things that had led to their disobedience and their unfaithfulness, whether it was Asherah poles, altars to Baal, or high places. And friends, any revival must begin with a sincere mourning over our sinfulness. Not just a regret over the consequences of our sin, but a real mourning over the fact that our sin has separated us from God. Our relationship with Him has been broken because of sin. He had to send His Son Jesus to suffer and die on the cross to pay for our sins. Brokenness over sin is what's often missing today, even amongst you and I as Christians. we become insensitive, callous, as though sins can be excusable. If we want to see it in our generation, friends, then repentance is one of those elements that is common to every revival. John the Baptist called on the people of Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is it any surprise then? Can we just go straight to return to the Lord? No, we have to repent first. And Peter, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, calls on people, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The second element, I believe, is common is a recommitment. After a repentance comes the recommitment. The people turned toward God. It wasn't just enough to turn away from their idols or they could turn to other idols. They turned towards the Lord God, recommitting themselves in their relationship to Him. The law was read again. The law was taught. The feasts and celebrations that were prescribed were reinstated, and they collectively recommitted themselves to the covenant. And any revival must not only be turning away from sin, but turning towards God, towards His truth, His Word, His commandments, His instructions. Have we done that? Where does His Word fall in our list of priorities of every day? We have so many opinions, so many ideas, so many programs, so many TV series, so many news stories and social media channels screaming for our time and attention. Where does the Lord's Word fit in all of that? We're entertained and amused and influenced and persuaded and seduced and occupied by so many things. Where does the Lord fit in all of that? Do we have time for the word of God? Because the immediate result of a real repentance will be a genuine pursuit of God. A genuine pursuit of his will, his desires, his ways, his plans, his kingdom. And all of that is revealed in his word. We need to sense a far greater burden for the things of God. The third element I find as common is this reverence. Once again, people revered the Lord. They came to worship Him. The center of worship was the temple, of course, so that had to be repaired and consecrated in their day. And notice how people gladly gave their resources for its renewal. I know that so often that generosity is preached in this way. Give, and then the Lord will give and multiply to you as though the motivation for us to be generous is so that God will be generous to us. That's not the pattern we see here because they know that God has been so generous to them, so merciful in withholding His wrath that their response to His generosity is that God can have all of everything that I own. We don't have a temple to furnish, we don't have animals and grain sacrifices to bring to priests, but we certainly do have churches and ministries and missions and other means for sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ around the world. And yes, they do require our involvement, our resources, our talents and our tithes to build the kingdom of heaven. A real revival will result in generosity from God's people to say, yes, God, I am on your program. I want to do what you are accomplishing. And the fruit of real repentance from sin and recommitment to the Lord is this reverence and worship that honors God. How much do you desire to honor God with yourself, your talents, your time, your whole being, and your resources? It should change our behavior. And the fourth and the last, which we can look at today, is this total dependence or reliance upon the Lord. So repentance, recommitment, reverence, and reliance. The people began to trust the Lord for their protection and deliverance because when they would worship other gods, it was so that the other gods would hopefully protect them. They offered sacrifices to hopefully appease them. They worshiped them so that if their God was stronger than the other nation's gods, then hopefully their nation would win. But when they committed themselves again to the covenant with Yahweh, with the Lord God, then of course, they look to him for deliverance and blessing. They look to him in faith and trusted in him because a relationship with God is based on faith and trust. And so when you and I demonstrate our commitment to the Lord, we rely upon the Lord and the boldness and confidence we have in the Lord's strength and his provision and his protection is evident when we truly trust him. So I hope you've noticed those things because that's what I believe you and I as this generation could be the ones to make a big difference. If we first would be the ones to repent and then to recommit ourselves and then to revere the Lord and rely upon Him. As I close, I want to remind you that none of this will happen without prayer first. Repentance or brokenness doesn't happen without first the conviction of the Holy Spirit upon you and your sin. Recommitment or the burden for the things of God has no power without relying upon the Spirit of God to illuminate His Word and to enable us to obey. Reverence or this change in our behavior that reflects His Lordship over our lives and conforms to His holiness requires that we have uninterrupted communication with the Lord. And reliance upon Him has everything to do with faith in what we cannot see. So revival doesn't happen without prayer. So friends, maybe that's where we need to begin. Because those who obey and serve the Lord will repent of their sins, will recommit to the Lord, will revere Him and all that they are and have, and will rely upon Him in every area of their lives. Will that be the hallmark of this church? Let us pray. This has been a presentation of First International Baptist Church of Copenhagen, Denmark. To listen to more sermon podcasts or to learn more about FIBC, please visit www.fibc.dk or facebook.com forward slash FIBCCPH. Thank you for listening.